This is a Rooster Teeth production. In 1959, nine hikers died under mysterious circumstances in the mountains of Russia. Investigations showed that they had torn open their tents and fled from the safety of their campsite in the dead of night. Theories about their cause of death ranged from government cover-ups to alien encounters. Today, we discuss one of our most requested mysteries, the Dyatlov Pass incident. This is Red Web. Hello, welcome back. Another mystery, another week. Fredo. Ooh. How you doing? Ah, uh, my head's already spinning with questions and like obviously, you know, if I'm getting ahead of myself, do not answer, but I'm curious to know. Yes. If let's they hear. all died at the same time. That will be uh we'll dive into it. We'll see we'll see yeah. what we know. Uh, about all of these folks. Um there's a lot of Russian names, so I want to go ahead and say Please forgive me if I mispronounce any of the proper nouns in this podcast. I'm Trevor Collins, by the way, your resident mystery enthusiast. Love this stuff. Fredo, Alfredo Diaz, our resident, uh, what would you say? Oh, my goodness. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty skeptical. Every week, I want to come up with a new a new way to describe <laughs> your, your levels of fear. <laughs> Terrified civilian. There you go. There you go. But yeah, you guys have requested this probably the most behind Cicada 3301. And uh, and I'm uh, I I, w I thought I was intimately aware of the Dyatlov Pass incident, and I'm so happy to have worked with Kristen to download all of this information because there's so many nuanced details within this story that many people don't cover, and uh, whether it be because they don't think it's part of you know figuring out what's going on. I find that there are some details that could lend some credence to many of the theories. There are a lot of theories. So we're going to have a lot of details to cover. There's a lot of theories at the end of this to cover and a lot of details about those too. So without further ado, let's dive into the setup for this hike, the timeline before the hike. Oh, give it to me. In early 1959, 23-year-old Igor Dyatlov formed a hiking group of eight others for a skiing expedition across the northern Ural Mountains in Sverdlovsk Oblast. Igor was a radio engineering student at the Ural Polytechnical Institute. Most of the other members of this group were actually fellow students, and all of the members of this group were skilled hikers with ski tour experience. At the time, they had the highest hiking certification available in the Soviet Union. The goal of this expedition was to reach the mountain Gora Otorten. So here we begin the, the timeline. January 8th, 1959, their route was approved by the Sverdlovsk City Route Commission. They confirmed all 10 people in the group. So I want to note that there are 10 people here, and earlier I said nine, and we'll get more into that. But on January 23rd, the group was given their route book, which listed their course as the number five trail. A 10th person was added to the group named Semyon Zolotaryov, who was previously supposed to go with another expedition. The group then left the city of Sverdlovsk. January 25th, two days later, the group took a train to the city of Ivdel. They then took a truck north to Vizhai, the last inhabited city before the route fully began. They spent the night here. They bought loaves of bread to keep their energy levels high for the hike the next day. January 27th, they officially began their expedition. 
On January 28th, one member of the group, Yuri Yudin, turned back because of a knee and joint pain that he was experiencing. So, Yudin had a history of health problems, including rheumatism and a congenital heart defect. And so, this was the moment where the group of 10 became 9, and this moment actually saved his life. And he's subsequently lived to about 2013, where he passed away at the age of 75. So, he's the member of the group who actually um, made it due to various other health issues at the time, unfortunately. But, hey, uh, good on good him, on, I guess. Yeah. Luck. So, what this tells me is uh, three important things. Yeah. One. They were all very skilled and certified. Yes. Uh, the highest level. Mm-hmm. Two, they were smart enough to, or at least for, like I said, initial thoughts, to know their limit. You know, he went back. He didn't go. Was it Yuri? There's, I think there's multiple Yuris. This Yuri said, my knee it's hurting, not feeling well. I'm going to go back. This isn't going to be good for me. And um, three, people knew that they were out there. That they yes. were going out there. It wasn't just like, hey, guys, let's just go walk yeah. into the woods. Um, right. And beyond that, like, you have somebody from the group saying, yeah, I'm smart enough to recognize I can't do this trip. I'm heading back. So you have somebody actually yeah. from within the group saying, uh, I'm heading back, and they know that this group is going out. In yeah. fact, I don't know if I'm uh, going to get into this later, but they also planned to send a telegraph to somebody once they had returned to signify, hey, we're good everything's good, we're, we're returned. They had set a planned date for that telegraph to happen. So yeah, people were aware that this was happening. They were being very safe about it, but this is the last time that the remaining hikers were seen alive. Ooh, that is scary and leaves a lot of room uh, for conspiracy theories. Oh yeah, there's. it's so unnerving to think about the group heading off on a trip that, like you said, they're fully equipped to handle. They're all very young, by the way. Most of them in their 20s, young 20s, as their students. Um, I believe Yuri was in his mid-30s, and he's the one who's turned back. Uh, Yuri Yudin, to be specific. There are two other Yuris on this trip, but it's uh, it's very unsettling to think about. But let's dive into the timeline for the hike, the trip itself. Okay. Now, I want to say this. Although the official timeline becomes a little bit muddied here, obviously, because all of the people who lived this trip have subsequently passed away, it is possible to track the records of this group's route because of the diaries that they kept and various photographs that they took on the cameras that were found at their campsite. Some of those photos I think we have available to us, and we're going to post some of those on our Twitter account, at RedWebPod, if you're interested to see some eerie uh, during the trip photos of these individuals. Uh, but here we are, January 31st. They prepared to climb a steep incline and stashed excess food and equipment for their return trip at a nearby wooded valley. So once again, to note what you said, they're very smart. They're preparing for their return trip. They know how to pace out their rations and everything. Uh, and they know they, they are planning to return. There's no indication here that anything is going to go awry or that they're going to spend extra time off on their trip. Man, when you're telling me that they were like taking notes in their journals and they had um, like cameras and equipment like that, this is getting juicy. This is getting real juicy. I feel like, I mean, again, who knows? Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but like there might be some tangible th like things that could sway my theories and suspicions one way or another. It's very possible. I would say, you know, at this juncture, knowing what's to come. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't be talking about this at all 
if it weren't for the diary here and the students that subsequently went to go try to find these individuals. So oh. it's very smart that these folks took photos, documented everything, um, because who's to say otherwise yeah. it could have been fully disappeared. Yep. Oh, I um, love that. I don't love that. Uh, don't love what happened to them, but I love that there's um, some tangible stuff. It, it just shows that anyone is at any point on the cusp of a disappearance, and that is what helps make this story unsettling. But without further ado, February 1st, they began to move north through the mountain pass. The plan was apparently to make it through and set up camp on the opposite side. However, drastic weather conditions got in the way and caused them to get lost. Instead, they ended up on the northwest slope of mountain Kolatsiakl. So at this point, rather than head nearly a mile back downhill, they decided at that point to set up a camp on the slope. At this point, I do think it's worth mentioning that Dyatlov, who is the leader of the group and the namesake for this incident, had planned to send a telegram to their sports club when they got back to Vizai. Remember that last city that they had visited, essentially indicating, hey, the trip is done as planned, just letting you know. Because again, as you pointed out, these are very smart individuals, very smart hiking enthusiasts, you know, people that go out into the mountains, you know, they know they know the dangers uh, involved. And so they set up this telegram situation to make sure that uh, their friends would know. They're certified, they're smart, they know what they're doing. This isn't their first rodeo. So his plan was to send that telegram and do that by around February 12th. But Dyatlov had told Yudin, the individual who had turned back, uh, for for injuries and pain that it could take longer right because they he was looking at the weather and he's saying listen I know for this time of year. This is kind of normal, but the weather wasn't let's just say ideal But because of this February 12th came and went without a word from the group and thus without alarm from their sports club and then eight days later February 20th relatives of the group demanded a rescue operation. And I would say demanded because it's been eight days. And if anyone is familiar with missing persons cases, yeah, after 48 hours, you're not looking good. Uh, so eight days later, they're saying, why is nobody looking for our, our friends, our family? Let's get out there. So the first rescue group, which was comprised of volunteer students and teachers was thus sent in. Military soon began to aid the efforts, sending planes and helicopters to assist. And then on February 26th, the search party found the remains of the group's badly damaged and abandoned tent on the slope of Kolatsyakl. So it's been days at this point, weeks yeah, even. Which is which is a bad sign. And I was um gonna question things at first because I was gonna question a certain thing. Question um, away. Why it, no one wanted to help them and i'm thinking like government wise uh, uh -huh. but it looks like they got involved after uh, like shortly after uh they got people to you know the community to help them out yeah i mean that's a good little tease because one of the as i mentioned in the hook there uh one of the main theories here is that there was a you know a government cover-up and it took days for any sort of search party to start and it came from the students and teachers a volunteer group came together and it mm. wasn't until that point that the military is then saying okay fine we'll step in we'll help out we'll we'll you know we'll yeah. assist look i'm not gonna rule out the government and military as not being sus okay they're very sus <laughs> <laughs> but i mean we're I in believe... soviet russia it's, I, it's yeah. perfectly okay to make those kind of uh, assessments. I can't fully commit to uh, voting them out just yet. Right. 
So we'll put a pin mm. in that. We'll come back to it. Maybe some more details. But let's uh, let's take a look at how the investigation after this uh, after they found the campsite, how that unfolded. Wait, another quick question. Oh yeah, please. The slope, like like it was like, I mean, you didn't say cliffside, but like, was it a it's, dangerous slope? So it's on the slope of the mountain. I would wager yeah. that these these individuals would I go sledding down said slope? Oh, probably very much so. Okay, no, no, just just questions. You know what I mean? I want to know. Maybe, maybe they fell off. Uh, I mean, this takes that image out of my head, right? It's yeah, a steep yeah. slope, and they fell off a cliffside or something. Uh, they're not burrowing carabiners into the rock to like ground mm -hmm. themselves. Yeah, I mean, like part of me wants to say, if they're the most certified you can be in Soviet Russia, uh, that they kind of waited out. They said, okay, listen, we could we could head back a mile to be a little bit on safer ground, or we can like pin down right here, put up the tents, and and call it a night. And so I want to say that, like, they assessed the situation and it felt okay for them. Not steep enough for them to not stay. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But, you know, maybe that was the downfall. Maybe that's, uh, maybe that's what's oh. it. So, wet, so to recap really quickly on what we know so far, weather drove them off their planned course. That's how they ended up on this slope. And uh, instead of heading back that mile towards maybe safer ground or towards the tree line, this is where they decided to set up tent, set up shop, and call it a night. And then this is where uh, they were found. This is where their tents were found. Interesting. All right, let's keep going. I like this. This is, hmm, hmm. So, the investigation. Mikhail Sherevin, the one who found the tent, had said, quote, the tent was half torn down and covered with snow. It was empty, and all of the group's belongings and shoes had been left behind. Now, to me, that is extraordinarily worrisome and it just raises a thousand questions for experienced hikers and skiers to leave everything behind, cut open their tent and flee what would have been in the dead of night, right? Because this is where they set up at night yeah. per their journals. And this is where everything was found. And they left their clothes. Uh, the, the, I mean, you know, maybe they just ran out of there for some reason with a minimal amount of clothing, but their shoes. I don't think they're bringing a ton of pairs of shoes you gotta be scared to ditch your only pair of shoes or boots or whatever in the midst of uh, the winter in the in the mountains of Russia. Um, yeah, something spooked them to to send them like flying out like that. Or I, uh, or you know, government came in and was like, "You gotta go. Let's go. Let's go. Get moving now. No time to no. Don't put on those shoes. No time to waste. Dang. All yeah. right." Well, obviously, the state of the campsite puzzled the search party, and the tent had been apparently cut from inside. So someone had sliced out of the tent rather than going through the front or anything, and eight or nine sets of footprints had been found leading away from the campsite, which is very hard to determine all those different pairs of, of footprints, but um, all individuals, more or less, are accounted for essentially departing the campsite. Some of the prints indicated that people were barefoot. Some indicated that they were wearing socks. Apparently somebody was wearing a single shoe, but everyone was in various states of undress. And there was no sign that any other person had entered the camp or had been present in that immediate area. Those oh. prints led, here's like, here's a little flag here, almost a mile or a, a kilometer and a half for those of you who aren't American, northeast to the edge of some nearby woods. Now, I want to pin this because 
Remember, earlier they were trying to make the decision, do we stay on this slope or do we go back a mile to the tree line? And, uh, and so when they fled, when they fled a mile to the tree line, it seems to indicate that they were, okay, we need to get out of where we are presently. Whether it's immediate danger, like some sort of environmental effect, or some sort of government situation, they knew exactly where to head, obviously. But after about 1,600 feet or 500 meters, the tracks were covered with snow, and, uh, and tracking them down even further became very difficult. At the edge of the woods, they found the remains of a fire. There also lied the first two bodies that were found dressed only in their underwear. What? Yeah. Very, very strange so far. But also, tree branches up to five meters high up on the trees were broken, suggesting that one of them had climbed the tree for some reason, possibly to get view on high, maybe to get a lay of the land, see what's going on, or maybe they were looking for something, right? Maybe trying to hide up off the ground, or maybe using these branches for some sort of rudimentary structure now that they had left their tents behind, or maybe obviously for the fire that they had found uh, the evidence of. I mean, just it's just so fascinating because it wasn't like they just up and disappeared. You know, there's like evidence of some of the things that they did and, you know, even a set of footprints that led away. But the thing mm -hmm. on top of that is just like it was all the footprints were more or less accounted for. Uh, I, I mean, you can still obviously you can still cover up footprints if you really wanted to. But yeah, no. OK, 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 let's go. I mean, and this is only going to make it stranger for these two individuals. But forensics tests later showed that there were traces of skin on the bark of the tree, indicating or at least validating the theory that someone had tried, in fact, to climb the tree until it damaged their hands. So they're either that scared or that determined to get up the tree. And then it was later found that these two bodies in particular had been turned over after death out of some sort of respect uh, as maybe to replace a burial that they couldn't do at the time because obviously this all happened very quickly. But it seems to indicate that there were living individuals after these two had passed away. That, yeah, were aware of their bodies um, mm -hmm. dead. Yeah, and the last piece here on these two individuals were that some of the clothing taken from the bodies were found on the branches of the tree, indicating that they hadn't been used. Now, this was, I want to remind you, on February 26th, I believe. But now the next day, February 27th, two more bodies were found between the woods and the tent. So coming back up, up the slope a little bit uh, were two more bodies. And that seems very interesting how they missed them on the way down, but... Uh, now we're starting to find more of the bodies and they're scattered out in different positions here. Now, it wasn't until March 5th that one more body was found between the woods and the tent as well. Not necessarily close to these other two that I had just described, but basically, just to simplify it, the first two bodies had been found there at the tree line mm -hmm. by, the tr by the cedar trees. And over the subsequent days, the next day, two more were found upslope and... It took like almost a week later, but several days later, one more was found up the slope near those other two. So now we have five bodies so far, but uh, referring to these bodies further up the slope, all three of them were found in poses suggesting that they were trying to return to their tent. See, this is weird to me because the, the first two bodies were found in, you know, we talked about how it looked like people mm -hmm. were aware you know people of the group were aware that they passed away 
via the way they placed them. So for me, in that situation, they seem smart, they seem level-headed, they seem knowledgeable, uh, they're certified. Why are we not seeing tracks go away to back towards civilization, right? To report this or to, you know, to talk about this, to, to get people out there, um, cancel the trip, let's go home, people died. Yeah, well, I would wager, you know, we're we're kind of in the midst of trying to figure out what happened in the night, you know, but mm -hmm. ultimately, I guess if you were to say heading back to civilization would be to head down the slope. And so that's what seems to be happening here. Uh, heading down the slope, back to the tree line, back through the woods, down the trail, heading back. I think they would then need to take a vehicle perhaps to head back to Vizai because that was the last populated city. So it seems like whatever it was, they were fleeing something or heading back towards safety, but it, they were deep enough into the wilderness of Russia that, you know, that wasn't probably an option on their timeline. Because because I want to remind you, it, this seems like it all unfolded within the night. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, yeah, no, that's very important. So, just again, I because I know this might be a little confusing, we have the two bodies at the tree line and three bodies uh, a little bit scattered, slightly up slope. So, with reference to those three bodies, other than one of them having a small skull fracture, there were no signs of physical injury found on these bodies, uh, and leading medical examiners believed that they had died of hypothermia, and that that was the main cause of death. Hypothermia being uh, that they succumbed to the cold. Mm -hmm. So I do want to pin the fact that one of them had a small skull fracture. Medical experts seem to lean away from this as being the primary cause of death. Maybe this is something that happened after the fact uh, because there have been many days since these bodies had come to rest there that, you know, maybe it was uh, animals that found right. the body. Maybe it was something else. But I do find it very fishy personally that uh that there's a small skull fracture there and uh and most sources seem to kind of neglect that piece but hmm. i don't know if we'll come back to it necessarily but i do want to pin it as an interesting tidbit now you might be asking yourself okay well that accounts for five of the nine hikers well it wasn't for another two full months that the other bodies were found so flash forward to may 5th what the last four bodies were found in a ravine about 250 feet or 75 meters further into the woods, and they were under 13 feet or 4 meters of snow. So these bodies were dressed better than the others had, and this seems to indicate that those who died first had given their clothes to the others. Essentially, you know, they're all freezing, they're in various states of undress. These individuals at the campsite, or at the fire I should say, the remains of the campfire, uh, had passed away, they respectfully turned them over, but then took their jackets, their gloves, whatever they might have had on them in order to better, you know, protect, with, themselves, protect yeah. themselves, yeah, against the cold. And that seems to be what had happened here. Three of these four bodies had fatal injuries, though. Now, this is something that I found very, very interesting. Uh, One of them had major skull damage, and the other <gasps> two had major chest fractures. And according to medical professionals, the force necessary to cause these types of injuries is equatable to that of a car crash. What? And I don't know, you know, of any human beings outside of maybe Dwayne The Rock Johnson who, yeah. can, <laughs> who can dish out some sort of physical blow. 
<laughs> equitable to a rock. car crash. The rock to be like, you want to feel, you want to know what a <laughs> what a car crash feels like. Jesus, <laughs> I do not want to smell what he's cooking oh anymore. Oh my goodness! If he plummeted down on that summit and he's, he just decided to go ham on some poor Russians, I don't know. He's but, cooking uh, up car crashes. That's what yeah. he's cooking up. Um, yeah, I was gonna say like, okay, so then somebody from the group killed somebody else. Well, hold on. Let me let me uh you know. You know, tickle your spine a little oh! more here. All right. There were no external wounds on the bodies, as if they were injured by some sort of high level of pressure. So again, how do you get that dramatic of internal contusions, right? You have the chest fractures on two. You have the major school damage on the one, but no physical wounds on the outside to indicate maybe an axe wound or a blunt trauma or anything like that. It seems like... You know what you might see if a bomb went off near you but you were only hit by the pressure wave right what the hell yeah so now oh. now hit me now what are you thinking uh i, I mean out of the uh maybe because i i've been listening to many conspiracy <laughs> theories and i'm on this show too much um i'm just like oh man government what, testing some stuff weave out the web. yeah um it could be anything oh weave that, web. that is so mind-boggling mm-hmm mm-hmm Oh, but then again, if the government was testing stuff out, like, would they even want to, uh, they'd have the, their own doctors take a look at it and leave that part out. Right. I don't, I don't know, man. I'm getting too deep down the rabbit hole. Pull me out, Trevor. <laughs> I might have to dig you deeper. I might have to boggle your mind a little more because I had only talked about three of the four. The fourth of the bodies was found missing their tongue and part of their lips. What? Right. So now we have a wide variety of individuals that seem to have succumbed to the cold and various states of undress and various states up the slope. Uh, just in case you want to build a mental map, we have two by that campfire. You have one of the individuals 300 meters up from them. You have another individual 180 meters up from that individual. And then you have another, the third up the slope, 150 meters from that second person there. So a different like a string of individuals going up the hill all of this taking place 1500 meters from the original campsite and now once again going back to that campfire at the edge of the forest as our point of reference you go in about 75 meters 250 feet and we have these four individuals deep deep under the snow with dramatically different conditions more clothing on them indicating to me that they seem to last longer they if you will if you want to put it that way that they yeah. seem to make it further than the group but they didn't seem to go back to the campsite so but they did eventually pass away by what seems to me to be completely different causes of death here god this is just like a a, a murder scene mhm mm it's a it's pretty it's pretty gnarly this what we've got here wild um god yeah so these last four individuals it appears that they had attempted to dig a shelter in the snow and lay it down with branches to stay warm now this might flash back to the idea that there were damaged branches about 15 feet off the ground level you know so maybe they were getting up there grabbing any branches that they could from the nearby trees to make this shelter perhaps but the bodies were found together a few feet away from said shelter and i want to leave this here the last bizarre detail were that two sweaters and a pair of pants found on the bodies in the ravine tested positive 
for signs of radioactivity. Oh, God. What? What? What if, even is this story, Trevor? If, if I were to make up a story, if I were an author and I wanted to go out and, uh, and, and make the oddest mystery I could, I would write down contusion. I would write down hypothermia. I'd write down radioactivity. And then I would make three different stories. These are all together in one spot. It's like somebody threw a handful of darts at the board to say, this is what's going to happen. And uh, and and this is really this and the evidence from within the diary to kind of track where they had been and all that is what really sparks the intrigue here because there are so many things to sink your teeth into to try to figure out what happened here to try to reverse engineer the whole situation. But to me, they're almost all completely discreet situations or uh, or evidences, right? Uh, especially the, the radioactivity. God. Um, it's very interesting, but there's a couple questions that I know we're all thinking about, and I want to address some of the major ones, especially that of the radiation. So that's all of the details that we have with regards to the timeline of the incident. Let's jump into some of the questions and, and kind of give some more details here before we dive into uh, the deep end with the theories. Yeah, I, so they're engineers, right? I believe so. Uh, I believe there are various Ooh. types of engineers. Christian, you might have the the details on the, the, each of the students and maybe what they were studying, but were they mostly engineers, I believe? Yeah, it looks like everybody involved was studying some form of engineering or physics or nuclear physics. Gotcha. So nuclear physics, okay. Yeah, okay. So here, here's my thing. Uh, mm -hmm. Like, all this, you know... All this stuff going left, going right. I was like, maybe they took drugs and it got really wild because none mm -hmm. of this makes sense. They're students, you know, they're, they could be experimenting with things and, uh, and yeah. maybe they freaked out and ran for the hills when mm -hmm. because when you're when you're in a group like that and you're having shared hallucinations, you kind of bolster the reality of said hallucinations against each other. And all it takes is somebody for. I don't want to insult anybody here, but, you know, if, if you're experiencing something a little sketchy, a little scary, and you have a weaker constitution, and you freak out, cut the tent, and run, your other com compatriots here might uh, might be inclined to go with you. So that was, that was a thought, and then it very quickly veered because I was like, okay, I remember hearing earlier that they were engineers, mm -hmm. so maybe they were trying stuff out, like tech that they were just building and maybe it was like this little like tech retreat where they all just got together and started building things and oh, man. tested that out or i that's really interesting that you oh, mentioned that that actually okay. that actually makes me think of the lead masks case right where where we had the oh, two yeah. individuals who were yeah, yeah. kind of like technically savvy and audio engineers and all that and um yeah and that's a whole different episode we did but yep. yeah some um, thoughts some thoughts all right so i want to jump into that you know, the radiation, like why the signs of radiation? And I don't think that this answers at all, but without having known this going into this story, I think that this might elucidate us just a little bit. So one of the hikers, Yuri Krivonoshenko, worked in the nuclear facility Mayak. He attempted to resign about six months prior to hike, quote, due to complete unwillingness to work in the system, end quote. His resignation was rejected and he was then sent to Ozero. Um, and it was believed that he was still working at the time that he went on the hike. And so 
one of the pieces that showed radiation on the piece of clothing seemed to belong to him. But that doesn't explain why the radiation is on the other clothing. Perhaps, you know, in transferring the clothing from one body to the other or in the shuffle, maybe the clothing had rubbed together and contaminated each other, or maybe one individual had put it on and it had contaminated the other pieces they were wearing. But that does, to me, at least offer a little bit of comfort on the radiation element. It offers a little bit of resolve, but not entirely. There's still that little bit of, well, yeah, but the other two pieces of clothing, right? How did how did they get it? Yeah. You know? Huh. And going back to what I was saying earlier, if they did build stuff, we would probably see signs of things that they've built. Ah, man, this is... Right, okay. yeah. If they, if they were doing some sort of uh, student experiment or something like that, they might have written in their diary about it, photographed it. Like you said, they'd probably have some sort of physical evidence there. But, but hey, man, it, it took... Uh, two extra months to find these four individuals, and that's because they knew to look for them. If they had some other piece of tech, and it was lost in the snow, or in some other way lost to the wilderness, they might not have known to look for it. So yeah, that's a really interesting point that you bring up, because whether it's small or large, you know, it, it could be somewhere, somewhere on the hillside, somewhere in the wilderness down below, you know, who's to say? The other major questions being like, why did they split up? Why are they in these various states? Two of them respectfully turned over, three of them seemingly heading back to camp, four of them building another shelter down at the base. You know, maybe the story is that two succumbed to the weather, unfortunately, due to their undress, uh, or maybe just their physical conditions. And three tried to return for other items from the camp while four set up a tent down below or at least a shelter made out of branches down below. I, I don't know, but uh, it's very interesting that there seems to be three distinct stories happening here. Yeah, that's that's the wild part. It's just like three different novels, three different movies. <laughs> like, right, right. <laughs> but they're all together in the same place. And then the other question we had here was like, was this avoidable? Um, you know, whether it was something, whatever made them flee, whatever sent them down the hill, um, their, their subsequent passing away, the delay after what should have been their telegram, the date of their telegram, you know, it took eight days for family and friends to say, let's go find them. Mm -hmm. Could any of this have been avoided if on the day the telegram was meant to come in, they said, uh-oh, alarm bells, it didn't come in. You know, if, if Dyatlov himself hadn't said, hey, Yuri, on the way back, let them know that we might be a little late on that telegram. If he hadn't right. said that, had people... You know, maybe would they have gotten to the site sooner and, and would people have been alive? Who's to say, you know? But to reflect real quick, Dyatlov and the group began the ascent on February 1st at 3 p.m. And that's that's weird because that is late in the day knowing how difficult that terrain would be. That would be atypical for a starting time. It would get dark much sooner. Um, and he chose a line about 1,600 feet to the left of the planned pass but, you know, that could be answered for with the weather conditions kind of mm -hmm. pushing them off course. But I think that those are two pieces of information worth being aware of. It, was it avoidable if they had started earlier? Was it avoidable if they stayed to the main path? Yeah, it, no, that's important. You know, all of these, all of these various pieces. But anyway, why don't we dive into the deep realm of the theories? 
So there are a lot of theories here, more than our typical episode. So I want to put that here at the top because I want to go through all of these and I want to give them proper credence because there's a lot of detail in each of these theories. And I'm actually really excited to talk about all of them because I think, again, unlike many of the episodes we've covered so far, there, it's so possible for multiple of these to feel like strong contenders. Right. But let's dive into the first one, that being that this was a KGB operation. Oh, yeah, here comes the government theory. Mm-hmm. And that, that's, this isn't even the government cover-up. That is a fully separate uh, piece that I want to dive into. But being a KGB operation, all right, so three of the hikers had government-adjacent histories. Oh. Krivonoshenko, as mentioned previously, he had worked in a nuclear facility called Mayak. Mayak was the site of the... Now, here's where a bunch of proper nouns come in, so bear with me. Mayak was the site of the Keishtem disaster. Uh, that was in 1957, two years prior to all of the events of this incident. And it was the third most serious nuclear accident in recorded history. Obviously, you might have heard of Chernobyl, or in 2011, in our lifetime, we had the Fukushima incident in Japan. So you might not have heard of the Keishtem disaster, but it's right up there in how dramatic it was. And Krivnoshenko worked there when that happened. Oh. Now, another individual from this hiking group, Zolotaryov, the one who was supposed to join another expedition and was added to this group late, well, he was a military veteran with years of combat experience. He fought for the NKVD, which was a federal agency for the Soviet Union, and he also had a mysterious tattoo that remains untranslated to this day. I'm gonna spell this out because I'm not exactly sure how this might be pronounced, but it's D-A-E-R-M-M-U-A-Z-U-A-Y-A. All one word, apparently in all caps. Now, I don't know if that's some sort of inside reference that Zolotaryov knew about or had, or if it's Russian or an acronym in some way, but to this day, it remains untranslated. Now, another individual from the group, Alexander Kolevitov, he was a fellow student of the group, and it was revealed that he had worked in Moscow as a lab assistant in a secret scientific facility before transferring to the university where everyone else studied. So now we have three individuals who have some sort of intriguing governmental background, uh, a tattoo that remains untranslated, and the fact that this individual was with a federal agency, you have somebody attached to a horrible nuclear incident, and then a, a student with a background in a secret lab. It's just, uh, you're laying some interesting groundwork, and just I looking mean, back at the Cold War, man, like, KGB on. was up to some stuff, you know? Come on, that's way too many people who have been involved with the government in a certain situations, mm -hmm. and, and, I mean, events and stuff, like, oh my goodness, are you kidding me? And something before I continue with this theory, I want to take a look at these three individuals, and look at them on the map here, the layout of the bodies as they were found, and see if there's any relation to each of them. This is just something I'm curious about as I kind of give this information. Uh, and for your reference, everyone listening, um, you can find this graph on our Twitter as well, at RedWebPod. We'll put as many images as we reference there so you can check it out. But let's see. It looks like Alexander and Zolotaryov were both found in the ravine together while Krivonoshenko was one of the first two bodies found there at the uh, the edge of the tree line uh, next to the campfire. He's one that was turned over, not wearing any clothes. Um, but that kind of makes me wonder, 
going back to the the pieces of clothing that were tested positive for radioactivity Kristen do we know who was wearing those clothes in particular we do so of the three that we just listed Alexander Klevitov one of the ones who's found in the ravine the waistband of his sweater and lower part of his ski trousers tested positive for radioactivity okay it is worth noting that the third piece of clothing that also tested for radioactivity it was found on a sweater that was worn by one of the other bodies in the ravine this might get a little confusing worn by one of the bodies in the ravine but belonged to Krivonashenko. okay that makes sense because he's the one who had worked at a nuclear facility yes so that sweater had signs okay Interesting. Okay, I wanted to see if there was any relation to these bodies and where they were laying, and maybe if there was some sort of nefarious, these three piled up together to, I don't know. Okay, so uh, two of them were in the ravine, maybe they're up to no good with the other two. Who knows? You know, who knows if we're to believe this KGB operation theory. But uh, it is said within this theory that these three were on a secret mission to deliver radioactive samples to a group of CIA agents and take pictures. The other hikers were unaware of the true mission and that the meeting of the CIA agents had gone wrong and that the group was subsequently murdered. Thus ends the KGB operation, but does attempt to answer, you know, maybe what was going on with the radiation, maybe why the government might step in to cover up. It's interesting. That answers a few things, but uh, does it really answer why they cut their way out of the tent in the middle of the night if they were meeting with a government agency. <laughs> yeah, they would just and, walk out of the tent. <laughs> yeah, unless they like left the other six in the tent and they were like whispering in English and they're like, slice the tent, dramatic entrance, what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> and also, <laughs> how do you not have footprints? Because they, they, there was no other footprints in or near or around the area. Unless, and again, this goes into the other theory a little bit, unless mm-hmm. the government kind of came in brushed off some, you know, some footprints. Maybe they walked down the hill and that's around. Listen, I don't know. I don't know. But, you know, it it does attempt to answer a few of the pieces here. Like, I'm leaning heavily right now into it's a government type of meddling operation thing. Because, like, it's just so... You got the backgrounds of these people and you have parts of, like, radiation and it just, you know, there's death, but then at the same time, like, it doesn't seem like there's any indication of them trying to resolve that quickly or, or any of the such. Right. Like, I just hmm. There's no real urgency except on behalf of the people that have the sympathy, right? The family members and the friends. And that's yeah. a good point. Why don't we just dive into the government experiment and cover up theory? All right. So this theory states that the hikers were conducting an experiment for the military. They had launched special purpose radio probes and under the shell of the balloons was a gas with a short-lived radioactive isotope. And it's theorized that a missile or something collided with and spilled the contents. And that these radioactive isotopes or these chemicals that were believed to have been used could oxidize very quickly and disappear very quickly from the human body within a matter of minutes, in fact. And because of this, an autopsy would not reveal the presence of such chemicals, but the effects on the body would still remain and contribute to the cause of death, such as damage to the internal organs, which many of the members of the Dyatlov group actually showed signs of. And to lend more credence to this theory, 
there were witnesses on site claiming that some of the bodies and their skin colors had turned dark brown, which is actually a sign of phosphorus poisoning. And the last nail in this theory's coffin that really kind of really stands out to me personally is that the government apparently knew about the deaths early and had delayed the investigations. In fact, there are signs based on government documents that have been found since this incident that show that they knew as early as February 6th, two weeks before the official searches began, that they had known that these individuals had come to an early demise. Oh. Ah. Remember, the telegram that said, hey, we're back from our trip was supposed to go out on February 12th, and it wasn't until eight days after that that the search went on. So February 20th is when relatives of the group demanded a rescue operation. And this theory is stating, and it's kind of shown via documents that do exist and are dated subsequently, that 14 days prior to that starting uh, search, that the government knew about what was going on or that these individuals had come into, uh, into a situation that ended their lives, um, which that, regardless of this theory in particular or the other theories, is a huge red flag and absolutely needs to be <laughs> investigated further. Yeah, I mean, that just, that's some government cover-up stuff. They were like, hey, you know what? Um, let's just not do anything until we finish like uh, covering uh, up the, mm -hmm. the crime scene here. Yeah, let's get all of our ducks in a row. Let's find the evidence. Let's figure out what our story is going to be. Let's hope this all blows over. Nobody comes searching for it. Oh, crap. They want to search for their friends and their family. Now let's pretend to come in to save the day. Let's give them the helicopters. Let's get out there and help them. Very fishy. Yeah, that's... Oh, man. I just feel like it leans so heavily into that. Mm-hmm. That's, like, that's a lot of what seems to be just facts, right? It's like... Mm -hmm. Oh, man. I mean, unless someone's faking documents, you know? That's true. I mean, that could always be a thing. But, I mean, from... With what we have on the table here, that just seems like where this is this conspiracy is leading towards. Right. And, and we already know, you know, like Soviet Russia got up to some stuff. And I'm not saying other governments across the world haven't gotten up to some stuff from time to time. But, <laughs> you know, we, we know that there's some uh, all governments are up to some nefarious stuff. It's always worth looking at your government with a little bit of like a squint saying like, what are you doing behind the scenes? Mm hmm. But, uh, but that concludes this kind of cover-up government-specified theory. Right. Uh, to take a small departure from this theory, though, is another theory that is uh, that they were mistaken for escaped prisoners while on their trek. At the time of this incident, gulags had been... They had started to shut down permanently, but they were still in operation. And uh, it's theorized that maybe they had been mistaken for escaped prisoners by local authorities, and thus you know, chased down uh, and put to rest or punished. Obviously, a very harsh punishment uh, by, by description of the bodies, but uh, alternatively, they could have been killed by escaped prisoners. Uh, Yudin, who was the one who had left the hike early, he discovered a piece of clothing that didn't belong to anyone in the group. And uh, I think that's the only key evidence here that seems to lend credence yeah. to it being escaped prisoners. Um, because also there were no escaped, there were no reports of escaped prisoners in the area at the time. So the mistaken oh. identity and saying like, ah, you're prisoners because why would you be here? And then like, 
That's, you know, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't go with that theory. There's way, it's there's way too much that kind of goes against the grain on that one. Right. No um, reports in the area. Also, like, I don't mm -hmm. think prisoners would be covering up their tracks. Like, right. And I think the real, I guess, the meat and potatoes behind this one, and the only thing that I want to pin for, uh, for at least thought is uh, is Yudin. He could be mistaken. Let's be real. But if you see a piece of clothing and you're well, first of all, are you going to know what is a piece of clothing of mine? You know, we work together. If yeah. you saw a bunch of my clothes, would you be able to identify the shirt that wasn't mine? Maybe no? if we were on an intimate trip together and we packed our bags together and you knew what hiking gear I had, maybe, maybe, maybe. you know what jacket I have or sweater I have. Yeah. But but outside of that, I think that's interesting. It's interesting, and if he's onto something there, it's worth noting that there might have been a piece of clothing from an external party. But anyway, that kind of concludes that uh, that simpler mystery. The next major theory being that there was an avalanche and subsequently that they suffered from hypothermia. This theory clearly states that they were, they were hit with an avalanche overnight, and that could explain why they left in such a hurry, that they cut their way out of the tent, they didn't have time to mess with a zipper or flaps or anything like that. Cut, move, let's run. You don't have time for your shoes, you don't have time for your clothes, and that's why they immediately set off down the mountain in fear of another avalanche or, uh, or an oncoming avalanche or anything like that. And to me, I was wondering, well, wouldn't the state, wouldn't the evidence of an avalanche be quite obvious? But, you know, after the weeks it took for them to start looking for these bodies, the signs of an avalanche could have very likely disappeared. I think the only thing that's interesting to me is that their footsteps were still vis visible, right? On the way down the path, up into Wait. a certain amount of distance, right? They could still see the footsteps for a while, but there was still enough snow to maybe make an avalanche disappear or the evidence of an avalanche disappear. So unless a small avalanche happened or unless like the ground was rumbling or an avalanche went off nearby and it didn't hit them necessarily. Yeah. Unless they were worried about another one and maybe that's why they ran. Uh. I don't know if like I wanted to I honestly going into this whole thing. This was one of my main theories. Right. But like there's just so many other things that I uh. don't that this that this doesn't attempt to answer yeah, they're hit by it or not hit by it like yeah so ultimately there's no real reason to believe anyone was injured before they left the campsite by an avalanche or anything like that so i think that's that and that's all we have for this theory that's all we have as far as right. details as far as uh theorists can are concerned um there's no other information regarding regarding that uh, that piece but something similar and I was going to kind of get to this to the end, but there's a, there's a, a phenomenon known as a Carmen Vortex that could have been created by a catabatic wind. So a catabatic wind is essentially, to simplify it, it is a, a cold air flow that tears down a mountain. I don't know necessarily how fast these wind currents go, um, but maybe that is something that felt like an avalanche or felt, hey, man, these are experienced hikers, don't forget. Like, Right. This mm -hmm. could cause an avalanche. We got to get to the tree line and get up the tree before an avalanche does come. And uh, and so, you know, they didn't give themselves prep time. They ran down the, the tree, uh, ran down to the tree line, tried to climb up the trees in panic, and then maybe tried to start a fire because they're like, well, um, nothing's coming. We need to stay warm. Some of us need to go back to the campsite or whatever. And maybe that is what kind of led all of these situations, you know, the situation that we see before us. Right. 
people are just scattered everywhere i feel like if something like that happened like as a group they would experience you know what i mean like we mm -hmm. we would see a less scattered like a crime scene you know what i mean yeah i mean i i, I don't know we, we could see the uh the slow failings of a plan right we have some people in various states trying to head back to the campsite we have people down there trying to make a fire i don't really know what was going on with the ravine and the shelter unless they're like let's make a rev like let's make a shelter and uh and try to like be in this little uh reinforced house or something in case some snow comes colliding down but why would you make it right. in a ravine where you're definitely going to be buried regardless unless you're trying to trap a pocket of air i don't know there's a thousand ways that this could go but oh. the only other piece i want to add on to this potentially very likely uh theory is that a carmen vortex that i mentioned previously is essentially the phenomenon that uh it causes intrasound and i'm saying a lot of things that i want to define so a carmen vortex is um let me give you a visual if you're on a bridge and you look down at those giant columns as the water mm. is flowing past it you might see vortexes that show up uh on the aft end uh, downstream of those pillars essentially creating little vortexes one counterclockwise then one clockwise one counter you know back and forth and that's just how the particular water is flowing well air is a fluid and uh and the flow, this particular flow of air can cause what is called an intrasound. And an intrasound is defined as a sound that is below 20 hertz or that of below human hearing. So this catabatic wind colliding down the mountain could have created this vortex, which creates a low frequency sound. And the only reason why I'm going through this roundabout way to describe this is because intrasound is something that's still being studied, but it is associated with a lot of hauntings and a lot of creepy events and unknown because studies show that intrasound can cause what is known as psychosomatic symptoms, right? You know, like nausea, loss of sleep, shortness of breath, panic or anxiety, severe dread. And these all seem to be things that could have been in play for these hikers. Uh. Now, I know I spat out a lot of scientific verbiage but are you following me a little yeah, bit yeah no no yeah i mean it's just <sighs> basically mean... some weird wind flaps could have uh, some weird wind activity could have caused a low sound that uh messed with people's brains mess yeah yeah that... hey i didn't i didn't even know that was a thing so i can't like <laughs> yeah and I, I guess the real reason i like to tap into that not only because it's a theory but because you know, hauntings are actually attributed to a very similar phenomenon, not necessarily the intrasound, but more of a an electrical phenomenon with with uh, basically things you don't hear, see, smell what, with your normal senses, but your brain still picks up and interacts with. Uh, so old electronics can cause, you know, hallucinations of a sort or cause you to feel anxiety or dread or to think that something more nefarious is happening around you when in fact nothing's going on other than old electronics and so that very same principle could be in play here through natural events <sighs> that is a weird theory i can't very strange i can't scratch that out to me that almost feels like in combination with them being privy to the weather outside and the fact that a they're on the slope and an avalanche might be coming to me i feel like there's a very good marriage between those two the catabatic wind coming down and like this kind of psychosomatic situation uh, that might 
answer most of these things as to why they fled, why they were mm -hmm. undressed, why they tried to climb, except for maybe the ravine situation with the radioactive clothing. That part, I still don't know. Yeah. I'm still, if I had to choose one, still leaning towards government stuff. Yeah. I've got two foots in both camps. That's what's, <laughs> that's what's so difficult about this. But as I mentioned earlier on, there is also a theory that involves alien activity and UFOs. Oh, so here we go. Let's dive into it. <laughs> Around the time of this incident, Soviet forces launched several rockets from a nearby military base. They claimed that the rockets landed further north in the mountains, but witnesses claimed to see, quote, glowing and pulsating orbs, end quote, flying in the direction of the mountain the group was at. There was also numerous reports of seeing orange balls of light in the area at that time, including on the night of the deaths. A person by the name of Lev Ivanov, who led the initial investigation, reported that the trees in the wooded area down below were burnt at the tops and claimed that he was forced by his advisors to remove those mentions from his report. One of those advisors then became obsessed with UFOs in the years following the investigation, including requests for access to KGB archives. So this kind of steers back towards that KGB government cover-up, whether it be UFOs in particular or, or just, yeah, yeah, they were testing out a new plane or device or missile mm -hmm. or something. Yeah, I mean, we've had many similar situations, maybe not disappearances, but crashes right in roswell we have area 51 and sightings that continue to this day um you know we just don't know maybe this is near the site of a russian proxy for area 51 their their site for testing new and emerging tech especially in this time frame right right mm -hmm. uh, but going back to ivanov here he admitted in 1990 quote when ep moslenikov and i examined the scene in may we found some young pine trees at the edge of the forest had burn marks, but those marks did not have a concentric form or some other pattern. There was no epicenter. This once again confirmed that heated beams of strong, but completely unknown, at least to us, energy were directing their firepower towards specific objects, in this case people, acting selectively." End quote. And thus concludes what we know about the UFO theory, but man, if that isn't intriguing. Yeah, <laughs> that's a wild one. Yeah, <laughs> to be I honest. mean, you literally have officers and advisors saying, hey, shut up about it. Don't even worry about this. Um, and See, I only it, wish that there were photos of these like mysteriously burned pine trees, you know? Yeah, um, could be right. But I don't I don't subscribe to that theory, to be honest. Yeah, I, again, I, another re another piece of information that tells me that this is that the government had a heavy hand in this uh -huh. that's just the way i'm being swayed with what's on the table here and my what my gut is telling me and i'm okay with that <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i don't know really what about this particular situation screams ufo except for the fact that one of the advisors that said hey enough on that stop talking about it put those notes take those notes out of your report and throw it away one of them went off to then become obsessed with UFOs, and then he dove into KGB archives. Yeah, that's interesting, but maybe that's just coincidence in this case. I think if I, if it were me, and it is me, 
kind of combining these theories, I would say that there was absolutely some sort of situation happening with the Soviet forces and the military in combination with the government cover-up and maybe, maybe in combination with the three hikers that had government adjacent histories. I think that there are, there's a through thread here that combines a couple of pieces that answer a few things. And then I would then extrapolate if there was testing of military craft that were breaking the, the sound barrier, right? Supersonic aircraft or missiles in the Northern mountain range here, some booms in the night, man, uh, I'm scattering. I don't, I don't care about my boots, don't care about my pants, I'm scattering. In fact, I'm a, I'm a trained skier and hiker at the top of my class. I'm on the side of a mountain covered in snow. I'm absolutely scattering. With If I'm in the range of feeling shell shocks from these missiles, that more than anything is what's going to set off an avalanche. And that also, to me, answers why there are some, you know, I, I referenced this earlier, the the two individuals who had the the crushed in rib cages right, like and the individual yes yeah like if you get hit by the pressure wave of a bomb nearby that is very likely to happen and i know that because of mythbusters <laughs> um yep. but but they had those pressure packs that could test what kind of psi was coming off of an explosion and uh and what is you know what can your body handle versus what is going to crush you in like a car mm -hmm. crash and so to me yeah i mean I, I do know that I recognize that there's a lot of loose ends here and nothing is fully properly resolved, you know, maybe, but there's a lot of through threads through all these different theories that I think you can make a whole story out of several of them. I, man, this is such an interesting, like, case. Mm -hmm. um, it really, really satisfied, like, my, my hunger for conspiracies <laughs> because... I don't know, man. It got really wild. Um, yeah. It wasn't. It wasn't very much so that they just like disappeared. And here are theories. It's just like there's tons of little bits and pieces of scattered evidence everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, man, this is a fun one. I yeah. still think the government did it. <laughs> some some way, shape, or form, the government was involved. I Absolutely. The, it, the whole it, avalanche thing. Like, I feel like man, I I don't know much about hiking or uh, avalanche. Like aftermath or whatnot but i would think that there'd be trees knocked over right some I, to me form of natural devastation yeah i would agree completely and to me i think it's more it's driven by the fear of the avalanche because of this testing that's going on or because of the sounds that are happening regardless of what it is i mean listen i don't want any bombs going off near me at all but uh, if they're in the same mountain range, you best mm -hmm. believe they're going to feel too close for comfort and that they're going to feel like they're going to threaten, uh, you know, an avalanche. Right. But to button it all up, you know, our, our feelings on the theories aside, I want to jump back into the factual happenings here. There's one last piece worth noting before we close out. And again, as with several of the mysteries we touched on this show so far, a lot of them have very recent developments. And it's very, like coincidental i think but i think mm -hmm. it's a little you know just a little bit of poetry to me um but a new investigation was actually opened on this case in 2019 and uh and was then closed again in july of 2020 and it concluded that an avalanche forced the groups to leave their campsite in the night and this combined with the low visibility and the low temperatures led to the death of the group by hypothermia and that is now the official closure of this case 
essentially on the books, it is considered solved in that way. But to me, I don't know. There, there seems to be a, an air of mystery here that I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think that that pins that down. I think you and I got really close by way of stitching together some of these popular theories that I feel really comfortable about, but I don't know how you feel about the closure of this case. I mean, I, I feel like they need to go and open this case back up, but the government's not going to let them. What if it's you and me? What's the, what are the Russians going to do if we start cracking this case open, you know? We'll start, start banging on some doors. Yeah, probably. Everything. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> Everything. <sighs> what won't they do is the question. That's, you know what? That might be true. But this concludes our episode on the Dyatlov incident. Thank you all so much for your continued suggestions on episodes and mysteries. I love seeing them come in. Whether you leave them in your reviews on iTunes or send them on Twitter or leave them in the comments section on roosterteeth.com where we also upload this this podcast thank you all so much um and if you you know speaking of reviews if you like the episode if you like this show and uh and you want to give us a little boost we really appreciate if you leave us a five star over there on itunes but otherwise word of mouth is the best thing you could do for this show sharing it with your friends anybody who you think uh, would be interested in mysteries this is something that we've uh you know we're super interested in and i feel like we've only cracked the surface of uh, of the unsolved mysteries and we're going to start growing you know a little bit more into these into these realms obviously you know we we have a strong footing in internet mysteries and i'll never leave that because i love i love that realm but i also love exploring reality because i think there's there's something mysterious to the internet but there's also something mysterious to everyday life Oh yeah, I'm I'm down for even some supernatural type Ooh, things. We might and, get uh, there. Monster mystery stuff like that. Like, oh, that sounds fun. That sounds yeah. fun and terrifying. I want to start getting into cryptozoology. I want to start kind of pushing the boundaries of what defines this show and what you guys can come to expect on this. So, with that said, keep your suggestions coming. We love to see it. We love the feedback, and uh, we will see you next week on Monday for another mystery. Mm-hmm.